Coming up on today's show, the Parliamentary Budget Office finds $1 billion. We'll the cost for oil and gas orphan well reclamation by 2025. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We'll chat with Chief Willie Sellers of the Williams Lake First Nation. 93 possible barrier sites found at the site of a former residential school there this week. We're going to chat now with Reagan Boychuk, who is with Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project. Um, uh, Reagan, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Hang on a second. Let me turn on the phone. There you go. Hi, Reagan. Thanks for having me. Um, Okay, so you were involved uh, in doing some research that actually ended up in the Parliamentary Budget Office's report on Orphan Wells, correct? I mean, your research was part of the basis for what they came up with these numbers. Uh, incorrect. Okay. My, they do cite my research. I did correspond yep. with the authors for a couple of years about the work that ALBP did, um, but none of what the work that we did, which in itself was just based on the energy regulator here in Alberta's own internal study that we got through Freedom of Information, we just finished their work. Um, we did extensive work and we collaborated extensively with the Parliamentary Budget Office, but none of our estimates, none of our uh, insight into how these things work is reflected in the PBO's report. And so that's why my initial reaction to the report was so disappointing right. after having collaborated with them to not see it there. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Now, um the report um, coming out and saying uh, about a billion dollars they're figuring by 2025. You're saying that's that's way way low, right? That the the cost of of cleaning up. Absolutely, they only look at a hand selected subset of wells um, from the Alberta Energy Regulator. Just the 7,400 official orphans is the only wells that they look at to start with, mm-hmm. and then they only use the Alberta Energy Regulator's official estimates. Um, which are entirely discredited, indefensible, uh, which I spent two years corresponding with them, showing how the AER's own subject matter experts had reevaluated that and found it to be seven to nine times too small, uh, but they chose to ignore it nonetheless. So what would you say the actual number would be instead of the one billion they're talking about by 2025? Well, I wouldn't offer one. I would defer okay. to the real experts, the vice president at the AER, Robert Wadsworth, He was the top official in Alberta responsible for these issues. And in 2018, he led an internal study of subject matter experts at the AER, working together with industry, did very sophisticated, elaborate work trying to answer this exact question of how much it's actually going to cost. And their answer was $260 billion as a minimum. They warned repeatedly that the more we learn, the more we're going to learn. That's an underestimate. But that's their number, a quarter trillion and I don't see any uh, evidence or argument from anywhere that would suggest we shouldn't be relying on that as the best estimate we have, a quarter trillion. And so that's why headlines about $1 billion um, is a rounding error and unwelcome. Uh, it it uh, portrays this as much smaller and uh, much more distant concern than it actually is for us Albertans living here with it. Okay, so let's uh, just explain this to me uh, in terms of, uh, I know like when we're talking about orphan wells, there's wells that are kind of orphan, but there's companies that are still involved and some, you know, still some going concerns and some really big uh, oil industry companies are still involved and still getting whatever money has been handed out by the federal. I mean, how does it all work in terms of how can you, how can they be that far apart? I mean, aren't we all dealing with the same data pool here? No. 
uh, and that's a big part of the problem. Uh, there's something very curious about every single study on these issues, whether it's from the Alberta government or a think tank or a federal watchdog, the PBO or a citizen group in Ohio or academics in Montreal. Every single study redefines all the words. They simply make up their own definitions of this type of well and that type of well, and they all use different sets of well. And the end result is that every single study is incomparable to every other one. And for some reason, the PBO enters this quarter-trillion-dollar urgent debate we're having here in Alberta, and they feel the freedom to redefine the word abandoned well. Uh, they, to them, it means something entirely new and novel. It's When they talk about abandoned wells, it's a completely arbitrary subset that they've invented, that they include in their numbers and extrapolate from. That's completely unhelpful and just confuses the matter. Um. Where should we be looking to get accurate information? The PBO, like you say, they, they, they work from some of the information that you had, but then disregard it in their final report. I mean, it seems to me like there's competing, um, I don't know, um, auditors or, or people who are looking at this and coming up with different things. Where do we look to find out the truth of this situation? <clears throat> what we need is transparency. Yeah. But that is precisely what we just lost with the new regulatory program that was introduced last month, the Licensee Capability Assessment Program. The new regulatory program to deal with this was introduced in December, finally, after years and years in development, and it removes all transparency. Under the previous system, for whatever its flaws, it monitored the only thing that mattered, the solvency of oil and gas companies. Do they have enough money left in the ground to pay for cleanup? It's the only question that matters, and regulators ask that question every month, of every company, and they publicly reported it. So you could go and see what each licensee, how solvent they were, <clears throat> according to the regulator. That has gotten so bad that when ALDP looked at those numbers uh, earlier last year, one half of all licensees, 342 of the oil companies operating in Alberta, were currently insolvent, according to the regulator's own BS measures, that they didn't have enough money left in the ground, but they're still allowed to operate. Under the new program, they completely turned off the lights. There's now not only no public reporting of solvency of these uh, insolvent oil and gas companies, uh, <clears throat> there's no measurement of it. The regulator no longer measures the only thing that matters. Do they have enough money left in the ground to clean up? Right. We stopped asking, and uh, we're not going to be able to solve that without that transparency. And that, at the end of the day, was the bargain. The federal taxpayers gave Alberta $1.2 billion dollars. Some of it was a loan. One billion was for idle wells. And the deal was, we're going to get reform from you. You're going to reform so we don't have so many orphan wells. The reforms that we got was they ended all transparency and all public reporting about the only thing that matters. And so in exchange for a billion dollars, we didn't get improvements. We got <clears throat> darkness. And uh, that's what's missing. Uh, that's what has to be overturned. And that was the explicit deal from the feds. This aid was in exchange for reform. They didn't get reform. They got backtracking. The new system is worse. Canadian taxpayers should be enraged. It's a little bit rich for the PBO to complain about the money being given out with no strings because the federal government gave the money to Kenny with no strings, despite the ALDP's public warnings that this is exactly what would happen unless they attach strings. We beg them to attach strings. We beg them to require reforms. They refused. A year after, it was obvious. The money was being wasted. The reforms were, weren't forthcoming. ALDP inquired whether the feds might want to tighten things up and improve this. They did not. So them complaining now is a bit rich. Mm. Uh, but 
if we give money with no strings, we shouldn't be surprised that it's wasted on industry's priorities not the public's. And we're just, uh, we're sort of at the at the front end. I mean, this is only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and more and more and more of these wells. Undoubtedly. And the next measure you're going to have of that is the rural municipalities who have hundreds of millions of unpaid taxes from these insolvent companies. That's already the reason. And we're going to soon have an update. Um, they're already out hundreds of millions, and they've recently uh, surveyed their members and are going to be updating us on how much worse the problem is this year. Because if there's one thing we can be sure of, it'll be worse this year than it was, and it'll be worse next year. The companies are in perpetual decline. Less comes out of the ground each year. Uh, there's no escaping this. It gets more and more urgent, and we better smarten up. The PBO's report is no help on that and that's why it was so unwelcome uh, but at least we're talking about these issues because they are urgent yeah absolutely and uh, and reagan thank you for joining us today and uh giving us a little more insight on on the announcement earlier this week thanks so much for joining us anytime January 27th of 1945 the red army liberated uh, auschwitz concentration camp in poland and in 2005, January 20, 27th, was designated as International Holocaust Remembrance Day by the United Nations, of course, today being January 27th. Um, Steve um, Shafir joins us now. He's the chair of the Jewish Federation of Edmonton's Community Relations and Advocacy Committee, past president of the Jewish Federation of Edmonton. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, so this day obviously is important each and every year. Let's just talk a bit about uh, how it came about, because really there's there, there's two aims to this. And of course, being the International Day of Remembrance, that's job one is to remember all the lives lost, right? Correct. Uh, it, it is. Um, it, it really, it's, it's, come, it's come around uh, in, in recent years, 2005, uh, long overdue as an international day to commemorate uh, the, the victims of, of Nazism, uh, in particular the six million uh, Jewish uh, children, uh, women and men who uh, were murdered by the, by the Nazi regime. Uh, there is uh, on the uh, Jewish calendar as well uh, a uh, commemoration day that has been around since the, since 19, the, the mid-1940s. And... Um, that is called Yom HaShoah, which uh, means the, the day of, of the catastrophe uh, is, is how it is uh, translated from Hebrew. Um, Stephen, you know, when, when I was reading about this, and, I, and I, I'm sure I knew it, but it, it, it was, I was reminded yesterday, we're talking about one-third of all the Jewish people on Earth and two-thirds of the Jewish people in Europe um, killed during the Holocaust. Those numbers, it's really hard to even wrap your head around numbers like that. It's extremely difficult to wrap around, uh, and, and, and quite frankly, uh, the number of Jewish people that were uh, on earth uh, in 1939 is more than there are today in the world. Uh, so if you, if, wow. if you can only imagine that, uh, that the uh, slaughter of, of one-third of all Jews, um, we still haven't recovered as a people. Unbelievable. Um, the second prong, the, the second point of this day is educating future generations about exactly what happened and why that's so important, right? Uh, of course, uh, especially uh, given uh, what Statistics Canada continues to report, and that is that 
Jewish people in Canada remain the number one uh, religious uh, group that is targeted by hate crimes. And in order to uh, to curb that, the first step is education. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing, uh, an important point to note is that uh, 3,500 North American teens were uh, were surveyed uh, out of Ontario uh, out of an Ontario-based uh, charitable organization just this year, and 32.9 percent of them feel like the Holocaust was exaggerated or fabricated. They're unsure if it actually happened. And 54% knew how many Jews were killed. And we, uh, uh, not all, all people listening, but I, I would say anybody over about 30, uh, this is the last generation of, of individuals who will know uh, of people who, who survived uh, the Holocaust. Uh, my, my children uh, won't. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, and in order now for for this to stay at the forefront of everybody's minds, uh, I think uh, it, it's important that a day like today is is commemorated. Yeah, and I think you know you make a good point, Steve. That it's going to get harder and harder every year that goes by to keep it. Um, where it needs to be. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that has any bearing or any relevance to the discussion um, about the fact, and, and we've talked about it on the air, we've had guests on the air talking about the fact that we've now entered this age um, specifically around vaccines and vaccine passports and the like, um, where people are readily um, willing to compare it to what, what the Jews went through at the hands of the Nazis, which is just, it's, it's unbelievable. But do you think it's a lack of understanding or, or how, I mean, how, how much added importance is there this year because of this kind of rhetoric that we see so often? Uh, firstly, I, I want to thank you personally because I have seen that you've been vocal about this and how disgusting that behavior is. Um, I've seen that on social media, so I want to thank you for that because it is disgusting. Uh, I would I would hope that at best it is pure ignorance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my fear is that there is an ingrained uh, anti-Semitic uh, trope there that just continues to perpetuate itself generation after generation and and will get stronger as the memories of the Holocaust fade. I hope you're wrong. I hope it is just ignorance, but I'm not naive enough to believe that it's entirely that. Um, But, you know, we'll keep talking about it, Steve. Just, you know, on this day, if we have somebody listening that says, you know what, I I would like to spend a few minutes recognizing this, learning about this, reading something, what's the best way to go about marking this occasion? There there are so many ways that this can be uh, marked, that that today can be uh, commemorated. Uh, here in Edmonton, uh, we have a Holocaust Museum exhibit uh, currently on display at the Stanley A. Milner Library in downtown Edmonton. Um, it's an exhibit that has come from Yad Vashem, which is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's on display, actually, until, uh, until sorry, January 30th. Uh, tonight, uh, the Jewish Federation of Edmonton has partnered with the Calgary Jewish Federation the Calgary Public Library and the Edmonton uh, Public Libraries to host a free online event. Uh, it, ben uh, Freeman uh, will be discussing the history of 
the hatred towards Jews to mark uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's considered to be the world's uh, oldest hate. Uh, and I believe tickets are available at jewishedmonton.org uh, for sign up, and it's a, it's a free event. Um, and as well, uh, we continue, and not specifically on this day, but uh, the Jewish community in Edmonton, one of the most important things that, that uh, we do is Holocaust education. Right. Uh, we do that uh, on a regular basis for adults. Uh, we hold a symposium for high school students, and we continually press uh, the provincial governments of the day for mandatory Holocaust education in high schools. It's something that's lacking in, in Canada, um, specifically in Alberta, and it's something that we would like to see as part of uh, the curriculum, uh, not only because it is our history, but I believe, as uh, Stephen Harper, uh, former prime minister, said, uh, when, when people start uh, hating uh, Jews, it doesn't stop there. Right. Uh, we, we happen to be the first step. And there's a, a famous uh, poem um, by, uh, I believe, a, a monk that said, first they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And it goes on, and the last yeah. line is, then they came for me, and there was nobody left to speak up for me. Um, it, it, it's, it's a dangerous... It's a dangerous thing uh, to see when when anti-Semitism is is flaring as it is today, and it's only a matter of time before those people turn to somebody else as well. And by by teaching the horrors of the Holocaust, uh, we feel that that will uh, enlighten people to not only not let that happen and to stand up against it, but that they will never forget what happened in the past and where hate can lead. Um, Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and uh, shedding a little light on this topic and, and giving us some ways that we can actually uh, connect with this day and be part of it. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Steve Schaefer, who is chair of the uh, Jewish Federation of Edmonton's Community Relations and Advocacy Committee. And as he said, they've partnered with uh, the Jewish Federation in Calgary and the Calgary Public Library and the Edmonton Public Library for an online event uh, taking place today. Um, last year, the discovery of many, many unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school near Kamloops uh, shook Canadians, and it brought a lot of focus to the residential school situation in our country and um, the dark history surrounding it. And as we know, at the time, we were told this is this is just the beginning. There'll be many, many, many more discoveries like this right across the country, coast to coast to coast. Happened everywhere. And people knew about it. Um, it's, not a, it's not a surprise. The people from these communities, they, they, they've known about it from day one. Um, another announcement this week um, that has a lot of people, you know, just once again reliving a lot of the feelings and the experiences we had around the Kamloops discovery, this one from the St. Joseph's Mission Residential School in Williams Lake, British Columbia. Uh, news there that um, as many as 93 burial sites may be located there. To tell us more about this situation and, and to talk through it is Willie Sellers, who is the chief of the Williams Lake First Nation. Um, chief, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. 
Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so just uh, tell me about this discovery. You used the ground-penetrating radar, essentially, right, to come up with a number of 93. Is that where we're at? That's right. I mean, we have a pretty good group here and uh, a lot of capacity dedicated to this investigation because we know the importance of finding the truth for our people and the First Nations people of this region. So we not only had ground-penetrating radar work, we had magnetometry, LIDAR, and you know, through our research that we've been doing and identifying areas of interest to start in phase one of the investigation, we um, we were able to identify 93 uh, reflections or anomalies right. or uh, mark graves, however you want to term them. Um, now, that's all the technology and all of that sort of stuff that's being used to identify these, but you also had an, a, a parallel, I don't even know if the investigation is the right word, but just talking to people, right, and documenting the stories. I mean, that's as big a part of this as the technology is, correct? That's right. I mean, we're able to uh, cross-reference and identify these areas through the numerous interviews that we've been doing over the past eight or nine months. I mean, there was also a lot of historical interviews that our team went through, a lot of historical research, and uh, you start, you know, getting down that path and reigniting those triggers and that trauma for those individuals. I mean, one of the key things and one of the key things that we continue to worry and stress about is just the health and wellness of, of all the survivors and all the people in the region. And you can see how much of a impact it has had over the past couple of days, not only on Williams Lake, but I mean, the ripple effect is right across this country. Tell me about that impact. What does what does this discovery mean to the people of the community? Because, like, whenever we've talked about this and I've talked with people from these communities, they've said, well, all you had to do was ask us. We've, we've known from day one. I mean, these stories have been around forever. It's not a surprise to us. We've told you. You just weren't listening. So when something like this happens and the announcement is made on Tuesday, um, what is that impact within the community? You know, there is a ton of disbelievers, and they're still alive and still voicing their opinion in today's day and age. I look at the local municipality here in Williams Lake and some of the comments that have came out of that mayor and city council. We have allies in that office, but we also have politicians in in high-level positions that still discredit the impacts of residential schools, especially those of St. Joseph's Mission located six kilometers from our community here. Williams Lake has had a reputation of these kind of things, and we start looking at you know those those impacts not just for our community here you know the stories that we've heard since we were kids mm-hmm. uh, you know it it isn't just us it's um every single first nations person in this region that attended that school multiple nations have been impacted Chilcotin, Decaf, Newhall, Sequebum, Stallium and what we've seen through this process is this outcry of of support, not just from Indigenous people and Indigenous leaders, but non-Indigenous Canadians. And that's really an uplifting feeling because historically we didn't have that same support. And, you know, this is a tough topic of discussion. And I, I was just looking through my phone, just trying to catch up and trying to catch up on my emails over the last couple of days. And there is just hundreds and hundreds of messages and emails and uh, direct messages on my social media that I haven't even gotten to. Uh, 
and and those those are very encouraging. It was making me feel a lot better because there is going to be a ton of work that is still need to be done over at St. Joseph's. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a ton of work that still needs to be done at the numerous residential school sites across this country. Uh, I want to ask you about that in a second, but first of all, um, so so is it is it validation and sort of an, a willingness to okay now that we're all on the same page and now that we have this understanding, we can start to move forward. Is is there two components there? Yeah, I mean, without truth, there cannot be yeah. healing. Yeah. We we still see the you know the intergenerational trauma, the direct impacts of those survivors, and, and what they're going through in every single one of our communities. And some communities are are, are more far along in their healing journey. There's some that are still really struggling, and I'm not saying that our community is perfect or we we claim to be perfect at all. Um, but I mean, we're we're doing our best to make sure our community is going to be okay. And as we you know start to start to unravel and cover the truth, uh, it's it's expediting that reconciliation process and speeding up our recovery for sure because. You know, education is a part of that reconciliation process, and in order for us to heal, we're going to need allies, and we're going to need Canadians standing beside us, helping, holding us up, and 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 really support us throughout this process. You know, what is reconciliation to me? It's an education, yes, but it's also, I mean, a big component of that is culture, language, ceremony, revitalization in our communities. And I was going through the comments yesterday, actually, on um, our social media live feed, thousands of comments. And, you know, you see people praying and you see, you hear people drumming and people lighting their tobacco and lighting their medicine and, their sm- and, and smudging. And, you know, it's... It's it's what we want to see, and it really is helping us bring that balance back. Because for so long we were told that we weren't allowed to do that. You know, my dad was a product of that residential school here, and, and there was a big gap of me learning my culture and learning my language and learning my ceremonies here. So now trying to learn them back as an adult is challenging and it's tough because our elders are dying at such a rapid rate. So we we have to you know, put that effort in. And if we're being supported through that process, uh, it's going to happen that much quicker. And I'm pretty sure that's what Canadians want to see. They want to see unity. And that's what we continue to push for, support each other. Everybody love everybody. Uh, Incredibly well said, Chief. Um, Last one, I'll let you get out of here. I know you're busy. Um, Where do you go from here now that you've found these 93 anomalies or reflections that may turn out to be um, unmarked graves? Do you, do you do you go further? I know I know some communities said they don't want to disturb um, these burial grounds. Others do. Uh, what, what's the plan? No. So we have a um, we have a pretty special group here. You know, whether it's our staff or our council is is um, you know very supportive and progressive. And now we start talking about next steps and phase one of the investigation where we've uncovered these ninety three reflections. I mean, we've led the technical exercise in the investigation in this instance. We start talking about excavation um, and next steps there. That's a multiple-nation approach that we've we've continued to, to tell the other nations that are impacted. And we have to bring their leaders in and their cultural leaders in We discuss how we want to approach next steps. And we're, we're treating it as a crime scene. Yeah. But we're also treating it as sacred grounds because of our people that are buried there. Sure. So, I mean, that's a broader discussion in light of the 
460 hectares that we still need to investigate. We're going to continue to do that work. Um, one thing that happened after after our announcement this week was that we had multiple communities' elders step up and say that they would like to tell their story. And, you know, that really means a lot because we're, we've been able to identify areas of interest is through these interviews, through that research. And we have identified multiple areas of interest based on the stories that we're going to be starting on in the spring. So it would be paralleling each process. So a phase one investigation, potential excavation, paralleled with further phase two, phase three, phase four yeah. investigation and GPR work on those areas of interest surrounding the grounds. So just at the start here. Uh, Chief, thank you yeah. so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, thank you very much for all of the support. Yeah, thank you very much, sir. Um, that is yeah. Chief Willie Sellers, who is the chief of the Williams Lake First Nation, and as uh, you know, as you heard, uh, the discovery of they they call them reflections uh, from the ground penetrating radar. Uh, Ninety three of them. Um, so we're not at this point saying necessarily that there's ninety three um, graves there. Um, but uh, the investigation continues, and as he said, it goes it goes hand in hand with the stories that they've heard for so long, right? It's just physical confirmation of the oral history and the oral understanding that they all have and has been passed down through the community for so, so long. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.